Right, we've been studying the book of Leviticus, as Adam explained, and we've covered up to chapter 11. So anybody who is uh, joining us for the first time, welcome. And we're going to pick it up, and you've come into just the most exciting part of Leviticus right in here. We're going to talk about the laws regarding childbirth and leprosy. So these are really, But actually, this is, so, 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 hang on, this is, you're laughing, but this is actually, there's a lot of really good practical stuff that's hidden in here. And, and uh, so you'll have to, you'll have to, to test, test that out at the end of the lesson here. So in Leviticus, first seven chapters, we're talking about five different types of offerings and, and we talked about the the priests and the ordination of the priest and there's so many things in Leviticus that are foreshadowing things that were revealed in Christ that Jesus is the high priest as it explains in Hebrews as Peter and Paul explain that we are the priests we are we are fulfilling the heritage of the priests that we like they have been washed we have been clothed and uh, uh, we, have, we have been washed, we've been clothed, we've been anointed, and we are offering prayers and sacrifices. So we are the new priesthood. And Romans 12, 1, we talked about how we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then the last time we are together, we talked about the clean versus the unclean animals. And remember, the clean animals were those who had the split hoof, and chewed the cud. And one of the early Christian writers, Irenaeus, made a point of saying that this was to teach us something, that chewing the cud is just like in Psalm 1, it talks about the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. So pigs eat garbage, whereas sheep and goats and, and cows will just eat the grass, but they'll chew on it and chew on it and chew it. This is the picture of what we need to be like meditating on the Word of God day and night th- throughout the whole day, just, just, just chewing on it, meditating on, on the pure scriptures, the pure grass of the Word. And then it says, split hooves, and Irenaeus said that the Jews meditate on the Word of God, but they only trust in the Father. They're like the horses that just have one hoof, whereas we're more sure-footed. We, we follow the Father and the Son, the split hooves. So that's a connection that he made that we can learn something from that. That's not inspired, but to throw that out there. And he is someone who was trained by Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he's one link removed. So I, I find that interesting that he's saying that. And, and, and after all, Paul did say in... In uh, Colossians chapter 2, that all of these things in the law of Moses were shadows that have now been fulfilled. So whenever we're reading in Leviticus, we should be asking ourselves, what is this? Is this possibly foreshadowing something that's for our benefit? So Leviticus chapter 12. So we're just taking it as it comes here. And, um, and so we're at Leviticus chapter 12 in verse 1. And actually, understanding this chapter here will help you to understand something much better in the New Testament. Leviticus 12.1, it says, uh, and I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying to them, If a woman conceived and bore a male child, 
Then she shall be unclean seven days. She shall be unclean as in the days of her menstrual isolation. Then on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She'll then continue in the blood of her uncleanness 33 days. She's not to touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, she'll be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstrual isolation, and she'll continue in the blood of her uncleanness 66 days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or daughter, she is to bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a whole burnt offering, and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of testimony, then he shall bring it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and it will cleanse her from her flow of blood. This is the law for her who bore a male or a female. But if she's unable to afford a lamb, she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a whole burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So a few things here. It says if, if a woman, if a mother has a boy or if she has a girl as, as a baby. So if the mother has a male child, she says she's unclean for seven days on the eighth day, then she will bring her son to be circumcised. And of course the girls don't have to get circumcised, so so but that's a, so seven days uncleanness on the eighth day she she brings her son to be circumcised. Then she continues in uncleanness for thirty-three days and at the end of that period she can now go into the temple sanctuary area and she, she comes there to offer to, to offer the special offering which he describes. If the woman has a female child, she's unclean for twice the time, for 14 days. And then there's no circumcision, but she continues in her uncleanness for 66 days. So you notice for the girl, everything's doubled from, from the boy. People, I've heard people say, well, this is oppressive to women, or this is putting women down. And I, I, I guess I never really thought about it that way. I mean... The, the boy has to get circumcised, and so he, he's, I think if anything, he's getting the worst end of the deal here. And why would they double it for a woman who has a girl? I said, well, there's two women involved, maybe that's why. So there's the mother and the daughter, and so it's, 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 it's you know, there are two women, so they may double it for that reason. But I, I never looked at this as any kind of a negative reflection on women at all in the sight of God. This is just, this is just what you do. So there's different rules. And uh, if anything, it's a little tougher on the boy, in, in my opinion. So after, so the woman can't go into the sanctuary while she's through, while she's going through this period of un, uh, uh, time of uncleanness. And then it says she brings to the priest at the door of the tabernacle to make atonement for her and cleanse her from her flow of blood, a one-year-old lamb for a whole burnt offering. And a pigeon or turtle dove is a sin offering, but it gives. But there's a, there's a discount option here. There's, it gives a break. It says if she can't afford a lamb, God makes provision, and says instead of bringing a lamb and a bird, you can bring two birds. So you'll you'll offer a bird as the whole burnt offering instead of a lamb, which obviously is going to be a lot cheaper if she's too poor. So God makes provision for people who don't have. Uh, as much as much wealth. So, significance of this passage in the New Testament is at the birth of Jesus. Let's turn to Luke chapter two.
understanding this will give you a deeper appreciation, I think, for what's going on in, in Luke 2 at the birth of Jesus. Luke 2. Starting in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be, for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And then let's pick it up in verse 21. It says, And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, just like it said in Leviticus 13. And then down to verse 22, when, when the days of purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, and then they go on and they're, they're obviously they're in the temple area at verse 36 it says now there was one Anna a prophetess of the tribe of Phanuel the tribe of Asher she was of great age had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity this one was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day and coming in that instant she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who look for the redemption of Israel so there they are they're in the, they're in the temple area and so all these pieces fit together with exactly what they were told to do. So what do you learn from this? One thing is they followed exactly what the law of Moses said. That's one thing. Number two thing I learned is that Mary and Joseph were not rich. Because it says if you can't afford a lamb, you can offer two birds. And that's what it says that they offered. They followed what it says in the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which was the offering for the poor people. So I learned that Jesus... Uh, Jesus grew up in a family that was very religious, the father of the law of Moses exactly, down to the day, but they didn't have much money. They were poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it says, after this, so this is that he born in Bethlehem, circumcised on the eighth day, and then after the 33 days are complete, then he goes to the temple and they offer what's prescribed in, in Leviticus. For a boy, and this was you don't you give an offering anytime. It wasn't just for the firstborn. You give an offering for anytime you had a boy or a girl, according to what it said in Leviticus. So that's what what they were doing. Now it's interesting to me. You you always, based on what we just read, you would always circumcise the boy on the eighth day. And the way they count days were was today is the first day. Tomorrow was the second day, and the day after tomorrow was the third day. So when Jesus rose on the third day, he died on Friday. You know, today, tomorrow, the next day, he rose on Sunday. So the third day is 
basically two days in the future, counting today as the first day. So if, if you had a baby and the baby was born on the Sabbath, the baby's born on Saturday, you don't get to choose when the baby comes out, okay? You don't get to choose when a woman goes into labor, it just happens, all right? So if a, if a woman goes into labor and has her baby on the Sabbath day, when does she have to circumcise the child? Today is the first day. It would be Saturday. the next, the next, the next Saturday. Be the next Sabbath, basically. So you'd have to circumcise the child on the following Sabbath. That's just the way it was. Now, in the law of Moses, it says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but the law of Moses also said you must circumcise the boy on the eighth day. Jesus made a point about this when people were giving him a hard time about healing on the Sabbath, Jesus came back and pointed out this requirement in the law of Moses. In John 7, 23, he said, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I man made a man completely well on the Sabbath? So that was one of Jesus' one of Jesus' reasons. He said, look, you have to, on the eighth day, Child's born on the Sabbath. You have to circumcise on the Sabbath. If you can circumcise on the Sabbath, I'm healing the whole man on the Sabbath. So, so what's wrong with that? And that that would just infuriate his opponents using that kind of logic by using the law of Moses and this passage from Leviticus right here. Uh, there's a, a years ago I read a book called The Proof of the Gospel, which is by Eusebius, and it's not very well known. Eusebius it was a writer, he's writing around the year 320 AD. And this is a book book one of of, of Proof of the Gospel. Book, proof of the Gospel is, in my opinion, one of the greatest apologetic works of all time. He's explaining the Christian faith and using reason and logic and evidence to back it up. And I think that I find this much more powerful, his reasoning and his evidence, than what I, what I read uh, today. And he made an interesting case here. Now, remember, it says in the law here that when a woman has a child, after her time of purification is over, she has to go to the tabernacle or the temple and give the offering of the either the two doves or... The, the lamb and, and the dove or the pigeon. So she's got to do that every time she has a child. And Eusebius is making a point. People are asking him, look, what's wrong with the law of Moses? If the law of Moses carried people all the way from the time of Moses up to the time of Jesus, why, if you're following the prophets... Wouldn't you stick with the law of Moses? Why don't people have to follow the law of Moses? And he, he, he had an interesting argument. He said, first of all, he just demolished it. He said, first of all, in Genesis 22, this is when Abraham sacrificed Isaac up on the mountain, or, or he, he was about to. God spoke to, to him through an angel, and he said to him, all nations will be blessed through your seed. So Eusebius says God's plan in the beginning was to bless all nations of the world, not just the Jews, through the seed of Abraham who was promised. So that's point number one. 
God's plan is to bless all the nations, all the people of the whole world. Point number two that Eusebius made was, he said, it says the same thing in the prophecy of Genesis 49. Genesis 49 is when Jacob is on his deathbed and he blesses each of his 12 sons and the great blessings comes to his fourth son, Judah. And in Genesis 49.10 it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his loins, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the expectation of the nations. Right? So he's saying that this is the one, not just that the Jews will look for, but all the nations will be looking for him, the one descended from Judah, the ruler, the lawgiver. So he's saying the same thing, is that all the nations will be looking to follow the one who is yet to come. And then he took a look at the law of Moses. And, and you may think a lot of the things in the law of Moses are tough to follow, like the dietary laws. All the things here in New England we can't eat. We couldn't eat lamps, lobsters. We couldn't eat clams. We couldn't eat shellfish, no pulled pork. It would be difficult and challenging to follow a lot of these things in the law of Moses and terribly unpopular for, for uh, the Gentiles. You know, all the Polish people and the Chinese people couldn't eat any pork and uh, New Englanders couldn't have any shellfish. So it'd be, it'd, be a, it'd be a little bit of a burden there to follow these things. But Eusebius said there are some things in here that are impossible to follow for the nations. If God's plan was to bless all the nations, one of the things he pointed out to in Exodus 23, 17, Deuteronomy 16, 16, God says he wants all males to appear before him in the place he designates three times every year. And so he says, okay, let's imagine that if that had to apply to the people all over the world, Everybody, all men, had to go to the temple three times a year. He said, that's impossible. You can't do that from all over the world. He said, the only way, the only way that that could work is if you lived fairly close to Jerusalem. Maybe you lived in Galilee, you could make a trip, but basically you can't follow this. And there are terrible penalties for, for not, not following that. He says that there's basically a curse on people who don't follow the law of Moses. Uh, And then he talks also about this requirement that says after a, every time a mother has a child. So is there, there's one mother in here who has his, his ten children. So this is ten trips to ten trips to Jerusalem. Think about that from from wherever you are in the world. He says you got it on the on the 33rd day or the 66th day. You have to be in Jerusalem and offer this offering. And, and he asked he asked the question rhetorically. He says, was it meant that Moses' future disciples from the ends of the earth must do these things if they were to escape the curse and receive the, prom the blessings promised to Abraham? Were they to go three times a year to Jerusalem? And were the female worshipers of all nations fresh from the pangs of childbirth to undertake so long a journey to offer the sacrifice ordained by Moses for each one of their children. So he, he goes on, he asked some of these questions. He said, 
Was that even possible that the women, the, every woman over the entire planet has to make a trip to Jerusalem every time she has a child to make an offering? He said, this is impossible. And he says, it was hard enough to follow Moses' rule of life for those who lived around Jerusalem or only inhabited Judea. And then it was quite out of the question for the, for the, for the other nations to fulfill it. So, and, and that's true logically. He said it's impossible. So God's plan is to bless all the nations, not just the Jews, all the people. This is his plan from the beginning, that all the Gentiles would look to the Messiah. So he's explaining the law of Moses had to be replaced if it was going to be a blessing to all nations. And after all, he points out, as it says in Jeremiah uh, 31, or in the Septuagint, as, as chapter 38, uh, that God had promised that the old covenant would be replaced by a new covenant. That's quoted in the Hebrews again. And after all, he also points out, he says, Moses promised that a future prophet would be raised up by God like him. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. Peter in Acts chapter 3 points out the fact that that, that refers to Jesus. It was a prophecy about Jesus. So, And Eusebius says, if it was going to be a prophet like Moses... What was the distinctive characteristic of Moses as a prophet? Different from every other prophet who came after him, Moses brought laws. All the other prophets said, follow the law of Moses. Moses brought new laws. So Eusebius says, if this is going to be a prophet like Moses, he needs to be a prophet who's bringing new laws. And these would be laws that would be suitable for all the nations of the world to follow. For people, no matter where they are, who couldn't make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year and every time they had a child. Okay? Uh, the, new, the new prophet would bring in the new laws for all the nations. That's the case of Eusebius, and logically it makes perfect sense to me. So, And he's saying, that's why we follow the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, but we don't follow the law of Moses because it's been replaced just like it said in, in the Hebrew Scriptures themselves. So let's move on to an even more exciting top topic, a more relevant topic, the subject of leprosy. All right, In Leviticus 13 and 14, we're not going to read all this, we're going to read some selections from this to give you a flavor. You can go, I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing on your own. And keep in mind, as we're reading this, what I said before, Colossians 2.16, it says that the law of Moses was filled with rules that were, in the words of Paul, a shadow of things to come. We've seen plenty of examples that thus far going through Leviticus, so I would encourage you to think about are there any shadows of something that was yet to come here, foreshadowed here. Uh, Throw out a few things here before we we start. The term leprosy is a general term for something that's infectious and spreading. And it talks in these two chapters of two of three different types of leprosy. One was what we think of as leprosy is a infectious spreading of something on the skin. On the skin of a person's body, that's the first type. The second type of leprosy that refers to is on leather or cloth garments. 
And then the third type of leprosy is house leprosy, which is on the walls of a house. So you have something growing, something nasty growing on the walls of your house that's spreading and taking over. So three different types of leprosy. Skin leprosy, which is the one we all think about, but also clothing leprosy and house leprosy. All right, so we're going to talk about uh, all three of those. So leprosy of the skin, let's start off with that. Leviticus 13, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has a scar on the surface of his skin or a shiny spot, and he appears to be a leprous infection, he is to be brought to Aaron the priest, or one of the sons of the priest. The priest shall examine the infection on the surface of his skin, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears deeper than the surface of the skin, it is a leprous infection. Thus the priest shall examine him and pronounce him unclean. But if the shiny spot on the surface of his skin is white, but appears to be no more than skin deep, and its hair is not turned white but is dark, the priest shall quarantine him for seven days. Then the priest shall examine him on the seventh day, and indeed if the infection appears as it was and is not spread on the skin, the priest shall quarantine him another seven days. Then the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and indeed if the infection is dark, and is not spread on the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a spot. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the spot happens to spread at all on the skin after he was seen by the priest for his cleansing, then he must be seen by the priest again. So if the priest sees the spot has indeed spread on the skin, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it's leprosy. When a leprous infection is on a man, he shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall examine him. And indeed, if the scar on the skin is white and has turned the hair white, and some of the flesh in the scar is healthy and alive, it is an old leprosy on the surface of the skin. The priest shall pronounce him unclean and shall quarantine him, for he is unclean. So a few things here. Um, the priests did double duty as public health officers. This is like the Center for Disease Control, which is uh, in, certainly in the news a lot today. So they had the job of quarantining people, deciding whether you're clean and unclean. If you're unclean, they, you would be quarantined. So that was their job. They're the public health officers regarding infectious diseases. And they had the authority to quarantine people. So... And it says what the people had to do when they were quarantined. Let's pick it up in verse 38 of chapter 13. If a man or woman has bright spots on the skin of his body, specifically shining white spots, the priest shall look, and indeed if the bright spot on the skin of the body are shining white spots, it's eczema, he's clean. As for the man whose hair has fallen from his head, he is bald, but he is clean. So that's encouraging to some people is that uh, you're, you know, you're men are losing your hair. That's, that's not, you don't get uh, kicked out of the camp for that. <laughs> he whose hair has fallen from his forehead, he is bald on the forehead, but he is clean. Now if there is on the bald head or bald forehead a reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead, then the priest shall examine him, and indeed if the infection, the reddish-white skin on the bald head or on his forehead is like the form of leprosy on the skin of the body he is leprous man the priest shall surely pronounce him unclean his infection is on his head 
Now the clothes of the leper on whom the infection is shall be torn, and his head uncovered, and he shall cover his mouth, and he shall be called unclean. He shall be unclean. All the days he has the infection, he shall be unclean. He is unclean and shall dwell apart. His way of life shall be outside the camp. So the people who were diagnosed with leprosy, it says that they were to tear their clothes, cover their mouths, they're to be called unclean, and they're to dwell apart from everyone else outside the camp. Now this this, this statement here about they have to dwell outside the camp and they're, they're unclean, it's kind of a shameful condition. It's an embarrassing situation. And so I wondered, could this possibly have anything to do with what it's talking about in Hebrews 13? When it talks about the Christ, like Christ has been suffered outside the camp and let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. It says we have no continuing city, but we seek one that's to come. So the idea of going outside the camp bearing reproach, we don't belong in the city that reminds me of this discussion about about the, how the lepers were, were treated here. So I don't know if that's a connection or not. I'll just throw that out. So I was doing some, some research this week on leprosy, on modern leprosy. And also, the question is, what they describe here as leprosy, is this the same thing as what we call leprosy today? And my opinion is... It's not not quite the same thing. That's what it seems like. Some of the some of the the, the, the give you, give you an idea. Mod, what modern leprosy um, and, and Jews over the centuries have pointed out that what we call leprosy today, its official name is Hansen's disease, doesn't seem to to match this. Modern leprosy is very slow slow growing. A lot of times you don't even, the signs don't even show up until you've had it for five years. So it's very slow growing. Uh, it doesn't turn the hair on the, on the skin white like it's talking about here. It doesn't turn your skin white, doesn't turn the hair on the white. And it's not extremely contagious through casual contact, unlike what you might think. So about two million people in the world suffer from modern leprosy like places like India, Southeast Asia, Brazil, Africa. So it's still, and even 100, 100 people in the U.S. catch leprosy every year, but I don't think it's the same thing. It looks a little different to me uh, from, from the description. For one thing, when it says the priest will go and look at you seven days later, and if you're healed or if it's taken over, so whatever you had, was it, it moved quickly, as opposed to modern leprosy, which, which advances very, very slowly. And it ends up killing your killing your nerves, and so you can't feel anything. So that's why people are missing limbs a lot of times. A rat comes in a poorer community and starts eating your fingers while you're sleeping, or you put your, your hand in the fire, you don't feel anything because you've lost sensation because of the damage that's done to the nerves. So uh, perhaps leprosy in the Bible was referring to a range of different infectious diseases, but whatever it is, it's something that moved quickly and turn the, the, the color of the, the hair on your skin uh, a different color, turn your skin a different color, and the priests were supposed to inspect that. So that's, that's my opinion about that. There are a few prominent stories of leprosy in the Bible. The first one I can think of is in Exodus 4, when God wanted to send Moses 
to Egypt to let the people go. And Moses said, I go back to Egypt, no one's going to believe me. And God says, well, I'll give you three miraculous signs. And one of them is, you stick your hand in your, in your cloak by your chest, you pull it out, it's going to be white like snow, and then you put it back in again, and it's going to be normal. So this is basically picking up and curing looks like leprosy from the description here. So that's the first example I can think of. The second one is the story of in, in Numbers chapter 12 of Miriam. Mm-hmm. And Miriam and, and Aaron were complaining about Moses' wife. She wasn't a Jew. And so they're complaining about Moses. They're complaining about his wife. And so what happens? The Lord appears and Miriam, the sister of Moses, is struck with leprosy. And she is unclean. And Moses prays for her that God will hear, heal her, but she's, she's kept outside the camp for seven days before she can come back in. So that's, that's, that's a, a second example. So she's hit with leprosy as a result of her rebellious and complaining attitude toward Moses. The third example is the story of Naaman the Syrian. So he's not, Jesus actually talks about him in, in the Gospels. So Naaman the Syrian, but let's turn there. It's in, in the 2 Kings chapter 5, or if you have an Orthodox Bible, it's a, a Fourth Kingdoms chapter 5, same place, different, different names. It's a story about healing leprosy that, that Jesus speaks about. Chapter 5 and verse 1. And Naaman, commander of the army of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord gave victory to Syria. The man was mighty in strength and valor, but a leper. And the Syrians, lightly armed, had gone out and raised and brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet of God in Samaria, for he would expel his leprosy from him. And she went in and told her master, saying, This is what the girl from the land of Israel said. Then the king of Syria said to Naaman, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand gold shekels, ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letters to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, I'm sending Naaman my servant to you, that he that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel led the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God able to heal and make alive, to heal this man of his leprosy that this man sends to me? You perceive and see that this man is using this as a pretext for a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes and sent notice to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let Naaman come to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and bathe in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away, saying, Indeed, I told myself Elisha would come out to greet me. He would stand and call the name of his God. He would put his hand on the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not bathe in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. I just thought about, you know, why is it that 
the prophet didn't go out to see him. Well, he's unclean from leprosy. Maybe he's just following the law of Moses. Maybe, he's, <laughs> maybe that he's just saying, I'm not supposed to touch somebody who has leprosy, so I'll just tell him what to do. Verse 13, Then the servants approached and said to him, If the prophet were to tell you to do something great, would you not complete it? But here is a prophet. Here the prophet said to you, Bathe and be clean. So Naaman went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to Elisha's instruction, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was cleansed. Then he, with all his aides, returned to Elisha and came and, st- and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I have come to know that in all the earth there was no God except the God of Israel. Now accept the gift of your servant. So he goes on, he tries to offer a gift, and, and Elisha uh, sends him off and doesn't want to take anything. But then Gehazi, uh, after after Naaman departs, Gehazi goes chasing after him. He's a, and uh, verse twenty. Then Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, said, "Behold, my master spared the Syrian Naaman, yet from his hand he received nothing of what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and take something of his." So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he turned from the chariot to meet him. And Gehazi said, "Peace, my master sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets came to me from the mountains of Ephraim." Give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Then Naaman said, take two talents of silver. So Gehazi took two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. They left and carried them on ahead of him. As they entered into the, into the darkness, he took them from their hands and stored them in the house. Then he dismissed the men. Now he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, from where have you come, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? And now you receive the silver and garments. And it shall happen that you shall receive from him gardens and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and handmaidens. And the leprosy of Naaman shall also cling to you and your seed forever. Thus he went out from the presence, from his presence, leprous like snow. So, story of the healing of leprosy and then infliction of leprosy that is not going to be cured on Gehazi. And then King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26. This is a short one. Uzziah is, at least he starts off as a pretty good king. Most of the kings were, most of the kings of Judah were bad, but Uzziah was better than most of them. In 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 1 now, all the people of land took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king of, instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to everything his father Amaziah had done. He sought the Lord in the days of Zechariah, who was wise in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, the Lord made him prosperous. He starts off very well. 
And then at the end of his life, things don't go so well. Verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the incense altar. So Azariah the priest went in after him. And with him were eighty valiant priests of the Lord. And they challenged King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you've rebelled against the Lord. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious with the priests while holding the censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord next to the incense altar. And, that, and Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked on, for he was leprous on his forehead. And they thrust him out of the place. And indeed he hurried, because the Lord reproached him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death, because he was, he was a leper. He dwelt in an isolated house and was excluded from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham and his son was, uh, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last are written by the prophet Isaiah. So Uzziah rested with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial that belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper. And Jotham his son reigned in his place. So uh, a few things I noticed from the Old Testament stories about leprosy. First thing, it's very closely associated with sin. Yeah. Okay. Miriam, what was the sin of Miriam? It was rebelling and complaining. The sin of Gehazi, greed and deceit. The sin of Uzziah, arrogance, usurping the role of the priests by trying to burn incense before the Lord. Pride and arrogance. So all these different sins that, that cause an outbreak of leprosy. The other thing I notice in all the in all the Old Testament people had the ability to cure leprosy and I can only think of two Moses was one who prayed to the Lord for the, the, the healing of Mary, the priests couldn't cure leprosy, they would just put you outside the camp and inspect you to see if your leprosy had cleared up, but they couldn't actually clear, the, they couldn't cure you with leprosy, but Moses had the ability to do it with his own hand and with his sister and then the other one was Elisha, the prophet, he had the ability to cure leprosy by giving instructions to heal Naaman of his leprosy. And he, he also transmitted the leprosy onto his, his own servant. So we're going to go back and, and touch on that. In chapter 13, it talks about leprosy of wool, linen, and leather garments. So it sounds like mold or mildew, something like that, something disgusting. And basically, you, if, if you have to burn it or wash it, clean it, but you have to completely get rid of it. And then the, the last one here is the leprosy of houses. Leviticus 14.33. Let's read that. Leviticus 
Leviticus 14.33. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, and I put of the leprous infection in a house in the land of your possession, and he who owns the house comes and tells the priest saying, Seems to me there is an infection in my house. Then before the priest goes into the house to examine the infection, he shall give orders for them to empty the house that everything in the house may not become unclean. Afterward, the priest shall enter the house to examine it. He shall examine the infection, and indeed, if the plague on the walls of the house has a greenish or reddish depressions that appear to be deep in the walls, then the priest shall go outside the house to the door of the house and quarantine the house seven days. After this, the priest shall come in again on the seventh day to examine it, And if indeed, if the infection is spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall give orders to take away the stones with the infection, and they shall cast them into an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall scrape the house inside and outside, and the dust they scrape off they shall pour out in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other scraped stones and put them in the place of these stones, and they shall take other mortar and plaster the house. Now if the infection comes back and breaks out in the house after they took away the stones and scraped and plastered the house, then the priest shall enter the house and examine it. And if indeed if the infection is spread in it, there's an active leprosy in the house that is unclean. So they shall break down the house, its stones, timbers, and all its plaster, carry them outside the city to an unclean place. So basically, uh, they're, they're, they don't take, they don't mess around with mildew and the house, all right? So, it sounds like some kind of a mold or mildew or something like that. And I don't know if anybody here has ever had experience with mold or mildew in a house, house leprosy. It is nasty stuff. And if you try to find out how to kill it, it's almost impossible to kill. You can hit it. People say, hit it with chlorine bleach. I spray chlorine bleach on it. It doesn't kill it. So basically, it's extremely hard to kill it. What you have to do is dig it out and take it out. I remember years ago, um, I had a problem. My, my The bathroom, we live in a two-family house, and, and we're on the second floor. And in and, and the bathroom, they, they built it without a vent and without a fan. So what happens is it's damp after people take a shower. It's damp and it's a perfect environment for growing green and black mold. Nasty stuff. And if you breathe that, it can be extremely dangerous and toxic. So what I did is I hired a, a contractor. This was not Chris. This was the, Chris would have done a better job of this. So I hired a contractor and he put in a, a, a ventilation fan and then what he did was he plastered over, yeah, Susan's shaking her head. You know you're not supposed to. He plastered over the, the moldy stuff so it looked really good and then painted it. And guess what happened a few months later is that the mold worked its way through the plaster and showed up again on the interior wall. And so even though I'd hired somebody to fix the wall, what I had to do myself was basically rip the plaster down, take it all the way down, and, and then start all over again and, and, and repair the wall. Because that's what you have to do with mildew. It's nasty stuff, and it's almost impossible to kill. You have to kill it. And that's why they said, 
scrape all the plaster off, get it out, put new stones in place, and if that doesn't take care of the problem, if it comes back, just level the whole house. Take the whole thing down. Yeah. That's how bad it is. So it's, it's nasty stuff. That's my experience. You know, we like to call uh, uh, Bible things by Bible names. So instead of referring to mold and mildew, it's house leprosy. That's what we call it. So actually, this last week, uh, we were doing some other work in, in our bathroom. My my daughter lives in the downstairs unit, and they were out. So I figured, oh, we got a free bathroom here. I can when you can use their bathroom, and we'll fix up some other things in our bathroom. And I went down there, and I noticed that on the caulking in the bathroom, this black, nasty mold stuff that was there, it was growing and spreading. And so even though I had lots of other things on my list of things to do this week, I thought with little babies down there especially, no, job number one, stop everything else. I've got to rip out everything that has mold or mildew on it. Just completely gut it, take it out, and, and redo, redo the whole thing because it's it spreads, it takes over. Uh, now, so my experience with house leprosy, with with dealing with mold and mildew, there's lessons to be learned here. There's spiritual applications. What is the spiritual significance of leprosy, of the, of, the, of the skin, of the house, of the clothes? What do you think leprosy might possibly be foreshadowing in our own spiritual eyes, a physical representation of something spiritual? Well, it's obviously, it's sin. It's like sin. It's like yeast. The Jesus talks about a little yeast leavens the whole lump. After the Passover lamb was slain, they had to get rid of all the yeast. They had to kick all the yeast out because it represents sin. It has a tendency to spread. And like yeast, it spreads and takes over everything. It makes things unclean. It's dangerous. It has to be eradicated. And you have to take radical steps of whatever it takes to get it out. You can't play around with it. You can't cover it over. you got to rip it out. Okay, uh, And those who are infected by this must be quarantined, not out, of, not out of punishment for them, as much as it is to protect the community. This is the idea is that, that sin will spread. If a church doesn't deal with the sin of sexual immorality, or if it doesn't deal with the sin of what Jesus would call adultery, you know, getting getting married again after somebody is is a divorce. What Jesus talked about in Matthew five. If a church doesn't deal with that, do you know what happens? You know exactly what happens. It spreads. It grows. It multiplies. It doesn't stay static. It goes from generation from generation and person to person. This is the nature. This is the nature of of an infectious disease, and we have to see sin. For what it is, it's foreshadowed by leprosy and by yeast because it tends to take over everything. That's 1 Corinthians 5 when it's talking about the sin of sexual immorality in the church. Paul says, listen, the Passover lamb has been slain. You need to get all the yeast out. You've got to get this out. Expel the wicked man from among you. This is going to contaminate. A little yeast leavens the whole loaf. Okay, so you do this out of love for the person who's in the sin and out of love and protecting everybody who's in the, who's in the community. That's what 
spiritual leaders are tasked with that responsibility. You're looking out for everybody who's involved. It doesn't matter whether the seed is greed or immorality or, or any other sin. It'll spread and take over if we don't apply loving discipline and do it out of compassion for everybody involved to protect those who have not been infected yet. Um, now I want to take a look at, there was a procedure, I want to close with this, there's a procedure by which a person who had been infected or a house that had been infected with leprosy could be made clean again. It's discussed in Leviticus 14, 1 to 8 for people and then 48 to 56 for the uh, for the houses. Now I'm going to, I'm going to, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to talk about the second one here, but it's, it's very similar for the first one. <coughs> Leviticus 14, 48. If the priest enters the house to examine it, and indeed the infection is not spread in all the house after it was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce it clean because the infection is healed. Then to cleanse the house, he shall take two live birds. Pay attention to the details here. He shall take two live birds, cedar wood, scarlet, I assume that's a piece of scarlet thread, and hyssop. And he shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. He shall take the cedar wood the hyssop, the scarlet, and the living bird, and dip them in the blood of the slain bird, and in the running water, and sprinkle the house seven times. Thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, the running water, and the living bird, along with the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the spun scarlet. Then he shall send away the living bird into a field outside the city, and make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean. This is the law for any leprous infection and lesion, and for a leprous garment, a house, a scar, a mark, and a bright spot, to determine in which day there is the unclean and which day it will be declared clean. This is the law of leprosy. Let's think about that. Okay, leprosy is like sin that spreads. Wood, water, scarlet, hyssop, Sprinkle me with hyssop and I will be clean. Scarlet. I think of the scarlet cord and Rahab that preserved her. It's like the blood of the lamb. And the wood and the water. And the one bird is, is killed and the blood is in the water and the living bird is dipped in the water with the blood of the dead bird and then is set free with the wood and the water and the blood. And the hyssop. What is this all about? Why would God be so specific? Why can't he just say, look, the priest just, just says a special blessing over the house and, and you're good to go. I think we know the reason. So it certainly reminds me of something I want to share with you. Something from a writing by Justin Martyr. He's writing around the year 160 AD. And he's talking about this unusual method of declaring uh, someone uh, clean, a house or a person. He says, by the two birds, Christ is denoted, both dead as man and living as God. He's likened to a bird because he's understood and declared to be from above and from heaven. 
And the living bird, having been dipped in the blood of the dead one, was afterwards let go. For the living and divine word was in the crucified and dead temple of the body as being partaker of the passion and yet impossible to God. By that which took place in the running water, in which the wood and the hyssop and the scarlet were dipped, is set forth the bloody passion of Christ on the cross for the salvation of those who were sprinkled with the Spirit and the water and the blood. Wherefore, the material for purification was not provided chiefly with reference to leprosy, but with regard to the forgiveness of sins, that both leprosy might be understood as an emblem of sin, and the things which were sacrificed an emblem of him who was to be sacrificed for sins. For this reason, consequently, he ordered that the scarlet should be dipped at the same time in the water, thus predicting the flesh should no longer possess its natural evil properties. For this reason also, there were two birds, the one being sacrificed in the water, the other dipped both in the water and the blood, and then sent away, just as narrated, respecting the goats. He's talking about the scapegoat story. That's from uh, Justin Mortar in Anticene Fathers, Volume 1, page 301. Let's take another look at the story of Naaman now. He's told to dip in the water seven times. And he objected. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it says that he was baptized in the water. That's the first time. The, first, the only place the word baptized, the Greek word shows up in the Old Testament, is in the story of Naaman. Same word as in the New Testament. And that was not lost on the early Christians. They'll say it, leave it that way. Uh, to, this was the only way that he could be healed of his leprosy. And a quote from, from Irenaeus. This is from Irenaeus, writing around the year 180 in Anicene Fathers, volume 1, page 574. Scripture says, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. It was not for nothing that Naaman of old, when suffering from leprosy, was purified upon his being baptized. Rather, this was a symbol for us. For as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean from our old transgressions by means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord. We are spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, just as the Lord has declared, unless a man is born again through water and the Spirit, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's, of course, quoting from John 3, verses 3 to 5. What was that again? That's N. Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page 574. I think that's probably, probably a good place to stop here. So as we think about the story of leprosy, let's think about sin, of having the same attitude of we need to do whatever it takes, tear out the plaster, tear out the stones. Knock the whole house down, whatever it takes, because it's dangerous and it spreads to uproot it from our own lives and also to have a church that's disciplined where we address problems lovingly and expel the wicked person so that they can repent and, and come back and be, and be clean once again. And let's learn from the example of, of Naaman that we can, thank God, have our sins washed away and not follow the bad example of Gehazi, who because of greed, ended up getting the leprosy stuck back on him. Mm -hmm. Amen.